something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down This is Rumble and I'm Michael Moore. Thank you so much for um, tuning in here today. Uh, I have a special guest with me. Yesterday, um, well, actually, we're recording this on Tuesday, May 5th. So yesterday, on May 4th, was the 50th anniversary of the massacre, the murder of the four students at uh, Kent State in Ohio. A total of 13 students were shot on that day, May 4th, 1970. Um, there had been approximately four days of protests against the Vietnam War that had been taking place on campus. And the governor of Ohio had ordered in the National Guard. And and then the National Guard, once the sort of protests had kind of somewhat dissipated after a few days, the National Guard was still there. And so then the protests turned toward um, why is the National Guard on the campus and they should they should leave. Um, this was 50 years ago this week uh, that this happened. And um, I was, uh, I was 16 years old. And I remember the exact moment that I learned of this shooting by the National Guard in Kent, Ohio. I'm, I'm in uh, near Flint, Michigan at this point in high school. I'm a sophomore in high school. And um, if I remember correctly, it was somewhere either in the noon hour, right after the noon hour, I was in government class, Mr. Trepas's government class. And someone came in and said that a bunch of students had been shot down in Kent, Ohio. And um, so our teacher turned on, you know, we, I can't remember now, it was either the radio or we had something called National Educational Television, which uh, they beamed into schools. It later became what we now know as PBS. Um, but WNET from New York, that's what NET stands for, National Educational Television. This was in schools all across the country. And so they turned the uh, the TV on. And I was, um, man, I don't know. Uh all I could think about during high school was how I was going to be sent to this war. And I was in a total state of panic and anxiety and fear um, during my teenage years in high school. How was I going to get out of this? How was I? I'm not going to go kill Vietnamese. What'd they do to me? What'd they do to us as Americans? What the hell was this about? And, um, but I was, I was paralyzed in that moment when this was announced. And, um, I got out my um, my notebook, one of those um, composition books. And at that point uh, in the Vietnam War, there had been approximately, I'm going to say, probably 50,000 dead. Eventually, there were 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam, 2 million Vietnamese, at least, and probably another 2 million in Southeast Asia, mostly in Laos, in Cambodia. This is, this is what we did to these people. 
Um, I stopped paying attention to the TV in the classroom. I didn't listen to the teacher and I just started making um, small crosses, rows and rows of crosses in this composition book. One cross and then another cross and then another cross and then another cross and and line after line. Occasionally, I I would try to draw a star of David, um, and then another cross and then another cross and then another cross, and then that went on for. And then finally, the teacher noticed after I don't know, probably fifteen twenty minutes ago, my and I was look. I must have looked like I was in some catatonic state and. He said to me, what are, you, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to draw a cross for every one of, of the 50,000 50, dead um, that have died, Americans that have died in Vietnam. And I'm not going to stop until I get to 50,000. And I knew right then I was going to be sent to the principal's office. But he didn't do that. He said, you just keep doing that. Just keep doing it. And I did it for the rest of the hour. And I did it the next hour, and I did it the next hour, and then I did it the next day, and I kept going that week until I had 50,000 crosses in that composition book. Um, I have, I'm telling you all this because this was, for me, um, a, a seminal moment in my upbringing, in my childhood, as a 16-year-old, as one who thought he would probably be going to Vietnam in two years when I turned 18, um, and the sight of our American soldiers, the National Guard in Ohio, turning their guns and not just not right. You, you can I'm going to I'll put up a link so you can see the footage of this. Not one of these students were armed. The students that were not one of them were armed. You see early on some kid throwing a stone at the at some of the soldiers. You see a, a kid waving a black flag. Another kid giving them the finger. That's it. That's it. No weapons, no arms. The soldiers go up to the, sort of the top of this small hill. And then they turn, almost on orders, it looked like, and open fire. And they fired um, 60 to 70 shots. Shot 13 of the students. Four of them shot dead. Another nine wounded. Uh, one of them paralyzed uh, for life. And uh, this rocked me in such a, uh, a profound way. And then seeing it on the news that night, this is back when the news actually showed you the violence that our government perpetrated either on Vietnamese or on our own people. Um, I'm sorry that the news media stopped showing the American public the ugly and awful truth of who we are. But um, a week later, Life magazine appeared on the doorstep, and there was a picture of one of the students um, laying dead in a pool of blood and a 14-year-old girl kneeling over him, crying, screaming for help, for whatever. Um, before, the four students killed that day where that young man in that Pulitzer Prize winning photo on the cover of life, his name was Jeffrey Miller. Um, another young man by the name of William Schroeder. The, the supreme irony there was that um, William Schroeder 
was an ROTC student. ROTC as in the army. In other words, the army had shot and killed one of their own. Um, third student was uh, Sandra uh, Schuler, and um, the fourth student was Allison Krause. Allison and Jeffrey um, were there uh, protesting the war in Vietnam. William and Sandra, um, according to the way that it was written up at the time, were just walking on their way to class. They were not involved. And one of the profound lessons I remember thinking about and writing about in my in my book of Crosses and Stars of David um, was that um, that whether you're a participant or whether you decide to be a bystander, no one is safe when the government is corrupt and evil. And I'm very honored to have here uh, today on this podcast, on the day after the 50th anniversary of this slaughter at Kent State, um, the sister of Alison Krauss, Laurel Krauss, and um, Laurel has led a movement over the years, um, and we're going to talk about that, and, but a movement to get the truth out about what really happened that day and um, has forced uh, the issue uh, to the forefront for decades now so that people would not forget what happened. I haven't forgotten, and Laurel, I'm really honored to have you here with me today on, on my podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. Are you okay today? I mean, it's, it's just 24 <laughs> hours after the, the 50th uh, anniversary of, of losing your sister. Um, so I, I really appreciate you doing this. And I, and I told you we didn't have to do it today. We could do it another day. But um, um, No, I, I wanted to do this. Uh, I'm uh, certainly exhausted, but also exhilarated. Uh, we had a really healing and beautiful 50th Um and it was just very unique with the COVID shelter-in-place uh, element to it. Mm. Um, and, what, what did you do? Uh, we, we held the Kent State 50th teach-in. Uh, we, when we learned from Kent State University that they weren't going to be honoring Allison or allowing us to participate just two weeks ago, uh, we decided that we wanted to interview academics and scholars and uh, even protesters and I'm also one of the participants, along with Joseph Lewis, and find out um, what it means to them, uh, the Kent State massacre then and now, what it means to the individual and the collective. And these are people who have been immersed in it. I, I would actually love to have some kids, too, come in. <laughs> um, so we have a broad band. Uh, uh, but basically, we got eight uh, people to participate. And um, I can tell you who if you're interested. But uh, sure. Oh, yeah, we um, we got uh, Peter Kuznick from uh, the Untold History of the United States, Oliver Stone, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, David Zeiger, who did the film Sir No Sir, which is about the GI protest uh, during the Vietnam War. Right. Um, Ira Stone and Ray McKesson. And, and uh, it's interesting that he came because he's from Ferguson and Black Lives Matter because uh, we feel that the Kent State Massacre and Jackson State Massacre that happened in May 1970 uh, is about protest rights. 
and uh, the right to protest without getting killed right. uh, is a big one. And that's part of our, our concern, too. Along with truth and accountability, uh, we have David Swanson and, and then me. And it's, uh, it's, it was just pulled together. But uh, they're short Zoom interviews with uh, – uh, and, and uh, people just asking three, answering three questions – um, but it's, it's conversations never had before. It's always been, okay, well then this happened and then this happened and then, and it's, you know, it's, it's who, who knows what and whatever, but this is about the meaning and, and the um, 50 years later, uh, these are the kind of conversations we feel need to be discussed. Hmm. Well, what were the, so this is a virtual teaching that you, that you posted and held yesterday. And, and I believe, um, uh, you're going to give me the link to that so that on our podcast page here, anybody listening to this uh, after the podcast, you can go and click on uh, the link if you'd like to observe and uh, um, participate virtually in, in this teaching that took place yesterday. We, we were doing it on, in homage to the, the teachings of the old days, you know, I, I, never before. I mean, we're not allowed to think about these things uh, related to government actions when they kill us. We're just supposed to like put the blinders on and move forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, what it means is there's no healing. Yeah. And, 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 and so they have a, a, a country of people that are, have big gaping wounds that have been inflicted on them and it makes them a lot less powerful. Yeah, I have a lot of hope here. I mean, what happened is this this came together and people watched and and they uh, did it on the 4th. And you can do it now. You can watch it. It's it's two YouTubes, you know, uh, uh, each of them two hours. So it's four hours, three or four hours. Uh, and uh, it's basically raw footage, you know, just just let, let's ha let's listen to others talk about what how they've come to terms with Kent State. How do have they made peace with Kent State? Uh, can teenagers uh, watch this? Is it is it good for them? Oh well, yes, because um, actually Joseph Lewis, who was shot twice in the Malay at Kent State in the Kent State massacre, he details his experience as a young person, and everyone can relate to it. Uh, he, he was a teenager at the time. He was, I, I believe, nineteen. Uh -huh. uh, years old, uh, right. like my sister, and he was a he was a friend of my sister's, uh, mm. and uh, he actually got shot by two different national guardsmen, mm. and and it had two different. I mean that that's absurd that, it, and and it, he has he tells a great story about that. So I won't I won't share. People need to go to www.truthtribunal.org, and on our front page you can you you'll learn about it. You'll see we have really beautiful art for this and. Uh, uh, it's um, uh, the Milton Glaser posters that uh, Bob Dylan did back in the 60s, uh, you know, that Milton Glaser did of Bob Dylan. I don't know if he, where he has a rainbow hair. Well, we did. We took that because we just thought it was so cool. And we gave it to the four against state four. And uh, you go to www.truthtribunal.org or www Project Censored, And you can watch the uh, the teaching. Um, and, uh, you can actually, you know, just skip what you don't want to hear. And, uh, it, uh, it, we hope that people will get a greater understanding what happened on May 4, 1970, 50 years ago. And it's a fact. Why don't you walk us through exactly, um, what happened? 
that day because, of course, my my view of it was was as a sophomore in high school, sitting at Davidson High School in in, uh, in Michigan. And um, you um, was she your only sibling? Are there other brothers or sisters um, in the family? Um, Allison was my only sibling. Uh, she was my older sister by four years. She was nineteen. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Allison because yeah, I, I, you know, I th- you know, she really is the star here as far as I'm concerned. She's my true north still. Um, but uh, she was an honor student at Kent State. Um, a very curious, thoughtful, and peaceful woman. Although she believed uh, in protest. And uh, she was against the Vietnam War very, very strongly. And one of the, there were some of the reasons she was, you know, against it is because all her friends were getting drafted. There's a draft lottery, and the draft lottery um, uh, was taking people away based on their birthday. Um, and uh, it, you know what kind of number you got, and right. all of her friends, uh, you know, had to make serious decisions serious life decisions and and you know people that were 18 19 and 20 they couldn't even vote right you know the voting age was 21 and that really fueled a lot of energy you know not happy (laughs) energy um and i think that was one of the driving forces of the protest that you're going to send me to war but i can't vote Uh, just didn't sit well with our generation and so where did did the two of you grow up uh well we grew up in uh, cleveland and pittsburgh uh, but allison graduated high school in uh, Wheaton, Maryland at John F. Kennedy High School. And that's where she really found her voice and, uh, you know, came of age-ish, you know. She only lived to 19, so never really fully blossomed. But uh, she, uh, it was a very progressive high school back then. Uh, There was no dress code. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I, I lived, I lived through, I remember getting the paddle a number of times because the, even in a public school, the dress code was very strict. You couldn't have your shirt tail out. You couldn't wear jeans. Couldn't wear uh, jeans. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this school, you could you could wear flannel shirts, and some wow. of the, uh, some of the teachers did too. And they had like different uh, class, different grades, and different classes. And if you didn't want to go to class, and instead you wanted to go to the art department, you could. And so it was a real free campus, um, and she was suburban, D- suburban DC, Wheaton. Yes, it was in like, Wheaton, Maryland, right in Silver Spring area. Oh, yeah, Silver Spring, Tacoma Park. Mm-hmm. Right, and and so we were going to school with ambassadors' kids and uh, CIA operatives. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, basically, it's all in the government mix, um, and so people were a little bit more um, awakened to what was going on politically in the world. Right. Uh, and the kids were too. And so uh, Allison uh, was very much. Um, and in this really fabulous fostered environment, she, uh, you know, took it, got into art. And uh, she uh, actually, she volunteered at St. Elizabeth's Hospital and had some breakthrough experiences with some young men that were uh, mentally uh, disabled and uh, hadn't spoken for years. And, they spoke with her because she had this very special, vivacious, attractive, well-connected uh, energy that everyone wanted to be near. Mm-hmm. Um, a little otherworldly, uh, just very evolved. Uh, I, you know, and so here I was. <laughs> the kid's and sister. I, and I was four years behind, yeah. you know, and, and she was real smart. You know, she didn't have to study or anything. And uh, 
she always had a book in her hand, like I said. And so, you know, I was dyslexic and, you know, kind of the antithesis. (laughs) And, um, but I tried and I, I did my darndest and she was also trying to get rid of me all the time because that's what an older sister does. And, uh, you know, um, uh, she had her birthday, her last birthday when she turned 19, April 23rd. Uh, 1970. April 23rd is my birthday. It is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've known this actually for many years because um, that thing pops up on Google, like who was born on your day, your birthday. And every year I I read Allison's name, Allison Allison Krauss and William Shakespeare. Um, You know, I would, I never knew that. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, and I see mine, I'm March 22nd and I think I have Jean-Paul Sartre, which is pretty good, you know, uh, but, um, but I'll, I'll see you one William Shakespeare and, 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 and and one Alison Krauss. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I think you got me baby there for sure. (laughs) Well, anyhow, for her birthday, um, that year, I managed to finagle getting a train ride from Pittsburgh because our family had moved back to Pittsburgh. And um, so I got a train ride to Pittsburgh to Kent, Ohio, which was probably about a two and a half hour train ride. Uh, and it was the first time I ever did that. And I remember my parents like, you know, oh, will you ever come back? You know, and uh, I get on the bu- I get on the train and my sister greeted me, you know, at the train tracks in Kent, Ohio. It was, and it was the first time we were ever, you know, together as, uh, you know, kids without our parents around and mm. it was fun and it was it was really great times and we went to see woodstock the movie right. together yeah that had happened the previous summer woodstock and woodstock right? was uh yeah. in august 1969 and you know it's my feeling now that you know it's 60 you know it's 50 years later you know 51 for that um the the government took a look at Woodstock and they said, we have to do something. Mm, Right. We have to stop this love piece and, you know, whatever. Right. No, there's there's actually, there are uh, historians who have said this and studied this, that, that, that gathering of that many young people um, totally freaked out certain people in power, uh, including Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, yes. most specifically. Yes. We have um, to stop them. Right. You know, we have, we have to, to stop them. And then nine months later, you know, the perfect pregnancy, uh, Kent State and Jackson State. Yeah, they, Jack- and they made sure that they had full coverage with black and white students so that they Explain would have. Jackson State to people just so they know that a, that a few days. Right, right. I can give you the, the nail, uh, the whatever it is. The, the thumbnail of it. <laughs> thumbnail, yes, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little loopy because of, uh, of all this. And so hope your your listeners no, will understand it. I've been talking no. it's too, way too much. <laughs> but um, uh, Jackson State happened 11 days, uh, 10 hours and, you know, 10 days and like 30 minutes, 30 hours or something like that uh, after Kent State. Um, it was uh, done by, I think, the Highway Patrol. Uh, it was, uh, every, the students were protesting Kent State. They were protesting the Vietnam War, but it wasn't really a full-on protest. Uh, I've, I've recently seen some stuff and learned that um, they were called out to protest by other forces that have remained anonymous. Um, and, and the black students weren't as e- eager to go out and protest as the white students were. 
because they know that if they go out and there's guns at the protest, they're going to get shot. Right. Whereas the white students didn't have that experience. Right. (laughs) So um, they did this in the middle of the night. Uh, It was at a, a female dormitory on the Jackson State campus. And they, you could see the bullet holes all over the front of the dormitory. They were shooting into a female dormitory. I, I, I have no, I don't understand any of this. Um, to William Gibbs and the other fellow, I'm sorry, I don't know his name. Uh, he was, uh, the, were, were killed. And I, th- I think like 11 or so were wounded. They never had a full number, you know, because it, it has never mattered as much that it happened to white to black students as it has to white students, sure. which which has always been a pain for our family because we don't have that view. Right. You know, any student, any protester killed by the government is illegal. Right. Right. I should point out that in the days after the massacre at Kent State, uh, students in cam- in cam- on campuses all across the country shut the campuses down, went on strike, uh, huge demonstrations that went on for days and days, right up until and including Jackson State there 11 days uh, later. And um, so it was, things were very tense, uh, I think, all over the country. Um, well, what started it all was when Richard Nixon gave yeah. his speech on TV. And as you alluded to already, uh, back every back then everything was on TV and everyone's glued to the TV. Like if you, if the president was going to be speaking, because your life was on the line, you know, about the Vietnam War and its expansion or whatever, you were going to be watching because it mattered. You know, it mattered. You might die. You know, it was mortality issues, you know, and you're a young person. You don't want to die for something that has no meaning. Right. So, uh, you know, the, he, he decided to have this Cambodian and it was Cambodian invasion. It was such a betrayal because when he was running for office, he was running on his secret plan to end the war. Yeah, he said he'd have us out of there in six months. This is in 1968, he said this. Right, and he he was winding down, actually. The numbers were winding down. And then the beginning of the year, in January 1970, things started turning. And uh, there was a lot of news out that the bombings were going on in Cambodia and Laos, and they weren't being reported by mainstream media. Um, And that was going on for a long time before they copped to it. The first time they copped to it was when President Nixon got on that speech and he said, we're going to go and invade Cambodia because this is just too dangerous. And he had this map and a pointer. And you saw that. What what was your experience, Michael? Um, Well, this occurred, um, this invasion of Cambodia. Was it April 30th? Is that yes makes sense? Ironically, that became the day in 1975 that the Vietnamese defeated the United States and the Vietnam War uh, ended on April 30th, 1975. But April 30th, 1970, at, uh, Nixon holds a primetime uh, press conference with the maps and the pointer uh, in his hand uh, showing the two countries to the west that border Vietnam uh, that would be Laos to the north and Cambodia to the south, and uh, said that we had to go in and invade Cambodia because the North Vietnamese were ducking out of North Vietnam and going into Laos and Cambodia and then coming back in in the south, 
And that's how they were, that's how they were getting in through what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, this was not some kind of super highway or whatever. It was just a name for actually quite an, an, an amazing uh, infrastructure on the part of the Vietnamese to try and fight these American invaders. I mean, it's, it, it was it, guerrilla warfare. It was guerrilla that's warfare. It. And they, it's, you know, I always t- I tell people like this who weren't alive then that Vietnam defeated the United States. The Vietnamese did not have a single aircraft carrier. The Viet Cong did not have a single fighter jet. They wow. didn't have anything. All the things that we had, we were the most armed country on the planet and and they lived in tunnels for years as they went back and forth trying to defeat these foreign invaders um it was first it was the french French and that was forever and and then they left because they couldn't make any headway because these guys really knew they knew it this was they were it was a jungle they knew their territory and they were in their territory it was their home it was they were fiercely independent, you know. They they do not did not take kindly to pe- regimes ruling over them. Right. They don't. Most peoples actually don't take kindly to <laughs> someone coming in and invading their home and killing their family members, civilians, um, just as we wouldn't. You know, when when we went into Iraq back in in two thousand and three. I would say to people, how, just how would you feel if suddenly there was some foreign army coming down your street? What would you do? Because they would, people would say, oh, they, you know, they're, they're putting those IEDs and blowing up our, our troops. Yeah, and that was horrible. But that's what you do to the invading force. And I think the Americans never understood, didn't understand the Vietnamese, didn't understand the country they were in. Uh, it was just a whole, they didn't uh, want to understand show. it either. It was just going to yeah. be brute force and get out and win. You know, they thought that they could just do this and bomb the, you know, the heck out of everybody. Right. right? You bomb yes. their way to victory. Bomb them, napalm them. The whole, oh, my goodness. It's bit. just and that so was anyway, our so, childhood. Yes, that was our, our childhood. And so um, so April 30th, he invades. Yes. And uh, or announces the invasion. He had already sort of secretly been doing it, as you said. And immediately the next day, uh, protests erupt on hundreds of campuses all over the country, including Kent State mm-hmm. in uh, Kent, Ohio. Kent, Ohio is is in the eastern uh, middle of the state over toward the Pennsylvania uh, border. If you just kind of get a, a bead in your head, if you know where Cleveland is, go, go down south from that. A little south of uh, Akron, right? Is that, do I have that right? I think that's pretty Yes, right. yes. Um, and uh, there's Kent, Ohio, and Kent State was a public university. And why, why did Allison decide, why did she want to go there? She's, she's, in, <laughs> she's, she's in suburban D.C. in Maryland going to a, a cool uh, hippie school. Um, <laughs> and uh, and why Kent, Ohio? And I don't mean to sound like I'm dripping with uh, any kind of um, – uh, attitude about Ohio being from Michigan, <laughs> but I'm just saying that generally, um, you know, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. But why, why Kent State? Why did she decide to to go there? It's an odd story. Um, when we were kids, we were growing up in Cleveland. We were both born in Cleveland, and our parents would take rides, drives on Sundays. We would go looking for Amish people. 
<laughs> uh, we would look for homes that looked like they were Amish. You could tell by the way that their curtains were. Yes. I've always been interested in the cultural stuff. So I was always, oh, how cool, you know? And, uh, you know, the countryside around Cleveland is, is real pretty. Uh, you know, it's it's flat, but rolling and, and yes, lovely. It, and it's, uh, it's the rolling hills that are going to lead up to the uh, Allegheny Mountains once you get into Pennsylvania. And, uh, it's, and it's just, on Lake Erie. Um, yeah, but uh, we would go south, and we often ended up at Kent, and we would go to the Robin Hood restaurant there, and it was like what our family treat was on Sunday. We often ended up there, and Allison fell in love with the campus mm-hmm. and uh, the lilacs in the spring, and my parents were so delighted because it was a state school, you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't even academically very good school. That's the weird part. Um, uh, and so she wanted to go. I, I, she wanted to go as far back as I can remember. So that says to me as a spiritual being <laughs> that, you know, Allison has a role in history that was meant to be. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, she, she knew who she was and what she came here for. From birth, yeah, yeah. When the 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 when the protest started there on May first and went into May second and then May third and then May fourth. Now you said you had taken the train there. Around. Oh yeah, I had been there. The I had been there the weekend before. No, no, no. no. Weekend before it was after the twenty third. I think that year it was like the twenty fifth, twenty sixth on the weekend. Um, and so I was there only on the weekend cause I had to go to school, you know, and my parents, when they came to, ca- you know, pick her up, uh, we had dinner together and it was the last time we saw her and it was, it was celebrating her birthday. She turned 19, you know, right. uh, it was ex- a beautiful time, a really one of the few, you know, we're all getting along. Let's be happy together. Family events, because there was a lot of strife about the war at our house. In what, there in were- what way? Well, my par- my father was, um, he had voted for Johnson. My parents had. They always yeah. voted the same, and they had a united front. Yeah. And uh, they, they thought that the war in Vietnam wasn't so bad. What's the problem? And uh, there was a, a generation gap in our, in our family at the dinner table. You know, who, Allison and I were anti-establishment, and uh, you know, we were more flower power and peace and all that. And my parents were like, get a clue, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you know, stop this hippie stuff and, 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 and this war stuff. And there were real big battles at the, uh, at the dinner table. And that was going across America. Uh, but your parents now, are they still with us? Either of them? Is that... Uh, my father uh, passed away in 1988. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, he, this kind of got him, along with, I think, the glycophates, uh, whatever, the Roundup. I think he had that problem mm-hmm. uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being exposed to uh, poison. Yeah. Um, and what about it, your mother? My mother passed away just a few years ago. She made it to 90. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it never healed wound, no. you know, and, uh, I, I remember and, seeing and, your father on, on the news for years after the killings. Uh, if I'm correct, I mean, I think he, um, I don't know if it was he or if it was Jeffrey Miller's uh, father, but some, some of the parents and, um, uh, no, that was my father. That was your father. Okay. Took this to court. 
Oh yeah. And, oh and yeah. You, your dad would not let up that no. that the that the truth was to be told. And um um I remember him fighting this fight this, and I remember thinking as a as a young adult at that point, I, I hope he's okay, you know, because this this yeah. it really did look like it took its toll um on him. Yeah. And, yeah. And the fact that your mother lived to ninety, um, to just a, a few years ago, um to carry that, I guess. I guess anybody who's lost a child, there's no way, there's really no full way to get through that, is there? Yeah, it, I, it, you know, I don't know about that. I, you know, I got to tell you, I've, I've, I've dealt with that, and it's going to sound odd, but you know, it was real painful lo- losing my sister, and, and and there's been this thing about the parents, like you know, oh, you know, and and I understand it comes from them, it comes through them, the child, it's their issue. I totally get that, but. <laughs> I mean, Alice was part of our family and everyone loved her and everyone missed her. You know, everyone lost a a very important human being. And uh, my parents never knew how to grieve. We're not taught how to grieve uh, as a culture. And uh, I made it my business to learn how to do that because I knew that this was bigger than me Mm. and that it it was going to be a really unhappy life if I didn't come to terms with these Mm. things. Wow. Um, but so they you, didn't. They didn't come to terms. And so it, it was a lot of bitterness and it, <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, just not co- not having uh, the ability to enjoy a peaceful or a loving life because of that. It, 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 these kind of things affect us on an individual and collective basis. And, and it's about wounds that never heal. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I'm doubly sorry now um, when I think of, of that. Well, my, but they, my father decided to take it to the courts and he thought that would be the healing, you know, and he wanted to show the young people how the court system worked and, you know, how it was the right way to go. And so the day after the killings, he, um, the, the massacre, he uh, went to the backyard and he had all the national press there and he got in front of all the national cameras and, he said, my daughter did not die in vain, and he wants something done, and he broke down in front of all the cameras. You remember that. You saw yes. it, right? Yes, I did. Yes. I have a very vivid image of him. Um, you know, I can, I can almost actually see him standing there, if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, the, the hats that men wore in those days. Um, <laughs> they, you know, you know most, most men, even from the working class, tried to dress, you know, as nice as they could especially if they were having to go to court or whatever but um this was his most important work of his life he he was going to get dressed for it you bet what what did he do for a living uh he was a manager uh upper to middle manager at westinghouse electric um Mm. he had a really good career he was a, a fixer he helped that's why we moved around a lot he would be called in to go work at a plant and and make it work better uh, he he had a lot of respect from everybody, and he knew the uh, uh, the CEO of Westinghouse, and would work on. He, in the end, he, they they really did treat him right. Uh, but basically, when Allison got killed, the Nixon administration and all their friends, uh, actually, it was the Ford Foundation, uh, wanted to bribe my father uh, to get him to drop the lawsuits. They said, would you like a million? What is it going to take, Mr. Krause? A million, two? What would you like? Mm. And he said, I'm not interested in money. 
I'm not dropping my cases. Uh, not interested. And they, but he said, where, where would you get that kind of money? And, and they said uh, from, uh, what was his name? Uh, um, he had an odd name. Um, from the Ford Foundation, Jay. Um, what was? It? Is this from the? And the, is this from the Ford family or? No, the Ford Foundation was the largest philanthropy organization in America. It probably still is. Mm. Um, and it, this was. Oh, I wish I could remember the name. What was I'm sorry. their interest in it, though? Why did they want him to drop the lawsuit? Why, why did uh, they? They care? wanted him to drop the lawsuit because uh, Kent State. The massacre, uh, th- there was just too many things that exposed that it was government action. And, and it's, it's plain as the nose on your face. Let's get real. My sister was killed by a government bullet, right? That's right. Right? Yes. And so the government killed her, right? Yes, that's correct. And, and, but it's never been allowed about that. Never been allowed to be about that, and the handlers of the Kent State massacre, and how this was fed to the to the press, and how it was handled in courts. It's never been allowed to be addressed that it was the government killing a protester and and civilians that were unarmed, unarmed. utterly. Yeah. You know, and this was this was target assassination. I learned at the United Nations when we took it in 2014. This this was a firing squad that my sister faced. But what was odd about it, it was when the guard were marching up the hill. They were all marching up to the top. It was the highest point on campus. They all turned in unison and they all shot in unison. And as my mother said about that, my dearly departed mother, did they all have the same thought at the same time? How does that happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 2010, the commands to fire showed up from a forensic study, and it shows unequivocally there were orders to fire. And it was always that there were orders to fire. How do sure. you do that, you know, anyhow? So th- th- that's where we're at with this. Uh, it, they they did it. They don't want anyone looking at it from that perspective. To this day, they, right? To this day. And it won't be uh, tried in a court based on that. Absolutely not. There's no laws when a government kills there's no repercussion. And on top of it, and they have treated us with indignation. And they've been covered with total impunity as they've done this over the last 50 years. I mean, who are we to want to have accountability and truth at Kent State? Who do we think we are? And because we have fought for that for 50 years, Let's have some accounting on this. Let's see who did this. Let's let's hold those people accountable. Simple questions for people that have been hurt like us. We have become the target. We are the ones that are tracked down. It has been 50 years of the government up my you-know-what. But that day, if we can go back to, to May 4th, 1970, so can you walk us through what, you know, in her final hour, her final, what, where, how did... How did she, what was going on that she happened to be there? What was she doing? And what, what if it's not too painful, if you could just tell us um, what transpired uh, that led to a government uh, bullet finding its way to her? It's not too painful. I'm used to it. It's 50 years. Um, uh, Allison, uh, like I said, had been a protester. She, she had been radicalized. Um, but she was like a thoughtful, curious person. It, just because she was anti-war and radicalized did not mean that she was uh, thoughtless or uh, without conviction. She had very strong convictions, um, and and she didn't want the, them on campus. Uh, the day before her 
slaughter on May 4, uh, she was cavorting with some uh, uh, kids on on the commons and, uh, you know, fellow, it was a commuter school at Kent State. So on the weekends, uh, you know, most of the campus went home or, you know, to, they weren't staying there in the dorms. It was a commuter campus. And so she was living there. And so on Sunday, uh, May 3rd, just like this year, um, she what she was on campus with her boyfriend Barry Levine, and uh, they were walking around on the commons, and they noticed there were a lot of guards, National Guard soldiers posted all over the place, and they were like guarding. We didn't know what they were guarding, but they were guarding. And uh, one of the guardsmen had a uh, lilac in his rifle barrel. And he was getting some attention and um, flipping the peace sign. And there was this uh, uh, really nice attitude going on between the, uh, the National Guard and the soldiers. You know, this guy was young. And, uh, you know, and he was a student, too. I found out that he was a student at the University of Akron. Um, and, uh, and the students at Kent. And so my sister, you know, pushed to the front. She was a tall gal. She was attractive and, uh, you know, vivacious. And she was very curious about this. And so uh, she's, she's up there and up walks the, uh, the officer and, uh, uh, commanding off, you know, the guy that's his boss. And he's, he puts his arm around the lowly frightened, uh, guardsman soldier and, uh, I said, what are you doing with a flower in your rifle? You know, and is, are you, is that how you're going to do target practice this week with a flower in your rifle? And, you know, those kind of intimidation quality questions. And uh, he, everyone is kind of watching and uh, he makes the soldier take the flower out of the rifle and, and he's getting ready to take it, the officer. And my sister intercedes mm-hmm. and grabs the flower and says, uh, what's the matter with peace? Flowers are better than bullets. And uh, flowers wow. are better than bullets are yeah. on her gravestone. Oh, wow. She said that th- less than 24 hours before her slaughter, before mm-hmm. her target assassination, as mm-hmm. I learned at the United Nations. And uh, it w- it's an irony in so many ways. Uh, it's... Here it was, a government bullet. You know, we would have liked flowers, you know. Um, but it was a government bullet that killed her. And, and she had been talking about how much better it is, how much better they are. And, and this is really woven into the Kent State story. But uh, Kent State University is, uh, they don't want to tell this story. And I don't think our U.S. government wants to tell this story because it doesn't make them look too good, you know? Mm. And uh, so you're not going to really learn this story except for me because uh, it's got to be erased from the collective consciousness by our government masters. So you've worked on this uh, truth tribunal for years. Uh, we, uh, Emily Kunstler and I founded the Truth Tribunal at the 40th anniversary 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we filmed original participants and witnesses of the Kent State Massacre over four days in Kent. And then we went on to do two more tribunals, one in San Francisco and one in New York. 
uh, I got to say, Michael, you really helped us out with them. Uh, Michael broadcast all the testimonials on his front page throughout our testimonials, and he actually helped us get going and was a very mm. firm believer in our work. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you, Michael. Well, uh, it was my responsibility. Uh, there's, um, I've, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, this, this was a singular event in terms of um, how it affected me what I decided to do. I weeks after that, I started plotting my escape for when my draft notice would come um, of how I was going to get into Canada. Um, and we were just 60 miles from the border. By the time I was a senior, some friends and I, we actually went over, we went over there um, to see if we could actually take a boat, uh, like a, you know, fishing boat, a little boat and uh, get across the, um, uh, the St. Clair River, uh, yeah, which is like a quarter. It's just a small river, quarter mile river, uh, half a mile into Canada. Because none of we were not going to go to Vietnam. And um, did you make it across the river? Yes, it's it's, a, it's actually kind of a f- funny story. I I, I tell it in the, I, I wrote a I wrote a book of short stories about um, ten years ago of. They were, they're actually incidents of my life, but I wrote them as short stories, but they're all nonfiction. Um, and uh, the book is called Here Comes Trouble. And uh, so this was, this was one of the stories of our kind of uh, Keystone Cops attempt to figure <laughs> out how, how we would escape the United States, get into Canada, and somehow um, plead with the Canadians uh, to uh, take us in and don't send us back to kill <laughs> Vietnamese. Um, but... As it turned out, as you mentioned earlier, by that time there was a draft. The, the, the draft was a lottery. And on this particular day every year, a lot of people tuned into this show. It was on public television. They, the, the bingo balls would come up out of that machine with, uh, with dates, with birth dates. And I mean, who thinks of these things? Who thinks of these things? Yeah, exactly. And my birth date that year, in the lottery, I was I was number I think two seventy five or something like oh, that. Oh, fantastic! So by that time of the war, I mean they were only taking the top sixty or seventy birth dates, and so um, I didn't have to I didn't have to move to Canada. You didn't have to worry so much. I, I don't know about that. I still worried. <laughs> I, still, I still worried a lot about a lot of things, but uh, but it was um, I knew certain things right then on that day on on May fourth by the end of the day and drawing those uh, crosses and, as I said, the occasional Star of David. By the way, it's just, it's something I've, I've always wanted to ask somebody that was in, involved in, mm-hmm. um, with this tragic, uh, awful um, incident. That, well, it, it was a domestic battle of the Vietnam War, in my yes, view. It was, yes, and these, these were casualties of Vietnam. I've always looked yes. at it that way. Uh-huh. Um, but... Uh, you know, as I was um, doing some research uh, for this um, today, actually, um, and I, I knew that uh, you and Allison were Jewish, but it turns out that three of the four who were shot and killed yeah. by the National Guard that day were Jewish. Uh huh. Three of the four. I mean, well, I, I think back then, um, you know, the the Jewish voice it was a, a more of a voice of dissent. Yes. Yes. Uh, but there was also the Holocaust fear too, so it's kind of complicated. 
you know, a lot of the kids, a lot of the kids in my generation, our generation, were Holocaust kid survivors. Right. No, I don't know if I said that right, but no, you know no. what I mean. They were, yeah, they were children of, of survivors. Right. And <laughs> it's, either way is fine, according to Webster's. Um, but, but 1970, just to put this into perspective, this is only 25 years after the end of World War II, after the end of the Holocaust. Right. There's not a lot of time between 1945 and uh, 1970. So, and so it's 75 years now. And now it's 75 years. But what? But so there wasn't anything special about uh, Kent State being a, a school that the Jewish kids wanted to go oh, to. Oh, yeah. Or, well, or, I mean, there were a lot. Of, I, there was a large Jewish community in Cleveland, and we yes. were part of that. Okay, and, yes, yeah. Um, and, and, and it was a middle American campus. It was an inexpensive place to go to school. It, it was not your first choice, usually, uh, unless you you came from a very disadvantaged family mm. uh, where you didn't have many choices. Mm. Uh, it was morally a backup school for most kids. Mm. Um, uh, but Allison wanted to go to the honors program. Uh, you know, she had decided she wanted to do it. She only applied there. Uh, we learned that she was uh, transferring though. She wasn't happy there. Uh, she felt like it was just a lot of, uh, you know, it was a commuter school with people that were not as evolved as she had been running with in Maryland um, and uh, in the DC area. So she was transferring to Buffalo, SUNY at Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, Barry and her were going there and he, it was going to be a state school for him and not for her, but it, it didn't matter. You know, she just wanted to go with him and they wanted to get out of there because there wasn't a real political voice. It wasn't very evolved uh, in that regard. Um, and it was also from what I've been able to ascertain, it was it was like the military complex state school mm. in Ohio. Mm. And so they were doing all this liquid crystal stuff, and they still do. And now they have liquid crystal pavilions. I mean, it's like, you know, big time mm. military stuff. So it's always been an arm of the military and the CIA. And uh, in fact, I learned through all this research that in uh, for, since at least 1959, Kent State was a CIA recruiting school. Mm. So in, in May... Early May, uh, mid May of um, nineteen seventy, she's a sophomore. No, no, she's a freshman. She's a freshman, but there's only a few weeks of school left. So right. her and her boyfriend had already decided to transfer. Transfer, to yes. SUNY Buffalo, mm-hmm. um, which is a state. And university she had of New she York had work that she had arranged for school. She was she was going to be teaching at uh, some camp or something. She had already arranged stuff. Yeah. Oh, jeez. And it, 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 and I'll tell you, she was something. She was really, really, you know, a, a human being of very good quality. I, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, I, I'm her sister and all that, but others agree with me. She just had this other essence, and and I think she had a, a bit of a faded essence, and and I also believe that she was willing to give up her life for the cause of peace. I really do believe that. I think that she knew what she was facing. She was a smart girl. Um, and I think that she understood that uh, 
for her to lay, lay down her life if they came to that was worth it. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I think any true change, change for the good that does take place in our world is initiated by people who can answer that question clearly to themselves. What would you be willing to die for? When you think about what is that thing, and I think most people would answer, well, of course, they would die to protect their child or their parents or uh, you know, family or maybe friends, maybe. Um, but what would you be willing to die for? And I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about it a lot lately, actually, um, in these last... Well, I think COVID has brought that to us. Yeah, it's I our mortality, it's, right? Yes, it's forced a lot of self-reflection. And... Um, and I have altered that question that I've asked myself for a large chunk of my life. What would I be willing to die for? And, and sitting here and having this quiet and time to think and time to imagine a better world if and when we get out of this. Um, I've altered the question to what would I be willing to live for? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you mentioned just before we went on that um, you're out in California. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm here at the Allison Center for Peace. Uh, and, and we're going to get on with our peace because they're never going to give it to us. It's right. for us to create. That's right. how it happens. Peace doesn't just, you know, show up, you know, no, no, no. It has to be fought for. It has to be, uh, you know, it's a lifelong thing. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to live in peace. I wanted clean air. I wanted the earth protected. I wanted to have creativity in my life. I was, I saw a bright future. I thought that it was, it was possible for us to live in peace and to help each other instead of, you know, and to live in a life where people help each other and come together and care about each other. That was what we were dreaming about when we were young. Right, Michael? Right. Yes. No. And I think that, we believed that we were going to create this better world and better world. Um, it, and it would be a cleaner world. It would be a healthier world. Um, we would treat each other uh, as we would want ourselves to be treated. And, and there uh, were a ton of us, ton of us that all thought that Woodstock and beyond way be Woodstock nation. So what happened? They shot at us. Right. And, then, and and people started realizing, hey, it could have been me. Any one of us could have been me. And so you start making decisions. Do you want, well, the Back to Land movement happened. Everyone, people thought it, there was a revolution that happened and went underground. And then they came up later and they found out, hey, it was just life as usual. No, not even a dropping a beat, you know. And it's because they have control of the narrative. You know, they, they made Kent State into what they wanted it to be. Mm. It was an unfortunate incident. Mm. Those students shouldn't have been there anyhow, you know? Right, right. Those kids deserved it. They don't say it, well, but they don't say yeah. that that's wrong either. Nixon, right? Nixon and the governor of Ohio, Governor Rhodes, they, right. I think they basically did say that. Yes, uh, they did. And uh, Nixon called my sister a bum while she was still breathing blowing up campuses and uh governor Rhodes called the, the students worse than brown shirts from the uh hitler from the nazi regime i mean my goodness i mean is 
like they were inciting. They had an agenda. This was to show the world that those kids deserve to get it and, and to sell it, send a chilling effect to everybody. Right. That if you protest, you're taking your life in your hands and your life is going to be over. Hmm. And afraid, it worked. Yeah, it did work. A lot of people were afraid. They people just, had post-traumatic stress from yeah. it. It just it, it, post-traumatic stress. It has an effect on the culture and the and and the collective. It, it, it a cr group of people with wounded psyches become unempowered people. They can't make clear decisions. They get trapped in their thoughts. We all know people that have these issues going on with post-traumatic stress, right? Don't yes, we? Absolutely. And then the government does this generationally. We have 9-11. We have all kinds of events. COVID is now the new one, you know, and, and who knows what they'll do with this and concoct it into some sort of, you know, story where, you know, it creates, you know, people living in fear and afraid to live a life. And that's what we were just talking about. It makes it so you never live your life. Right. Or you can choose the other path, right? Well, I think that you got to really work to get rid of post-traumatic stress there. Yeah. I, I started at 20. My sister died when I was 15. Started at 20. And it, I really didn't find anything to help uh, until eight years, eight and a half years ago or so uh, with EMDR, which is eye movement deprogramming and reprocessing. It's a it's a, a post-traumatic stress therapy that is miraculous and it works and it, boy, it worked like a charm on me. And I managed to get my neural pathways connected again and I don't get triggered every minute. Yeah. I, you know, I, have, when you, I have a couple of friends who've gone through that and they, they swear by it. It's uh, say the, the letters again, it's E M D R, right? R. Right. You can Eye it, movement. You can, yeah. It's about programming right. and reprocessing or reprocessing. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it doesn't seem to make sense how it works, but that's no matter. It works. It doesn't work for everybody, but if it works for you, I mean, it worked for me the first time I went and I went for three and a half years because I had such severe problems with all this. And, uh, every session I had built on the next, there was no loss. You know, it's just like, I just got better and healthier and more connected. And, and I, when I met you back 10 years ago, I was in the, the worst post-traumatic uh, hell I was ever in. It was, uh, I had had some bad things happen and it had it, um, re-sparked my Kent State wound. And that's what got me to pick up the baton to form the Kent State Truth Tribunal with Emily Kunstler. It was because of pain I needed to heal. And it, it really was very, in, you know, inspiring. And uh, Kent State is, um, the Truth Tribunal is, has been a healing vehicle. And, and that's what I want my work to be, our work, uh, is let's heal these wounds. Let, let's get on with our living and life. And let, let's get beyond this imposed war, endless war, and, and never being allowed to think about peace and integrate peace into our lives. And uh, just this last year, I came up with what would Allison do now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it's a new way to approach the world instead of worrying and fussing and, you know, making it about money and power or whatever. You could actually, you know, solve our problems with what would Allison do now? 
And I think it could change the world. You know, I just, I just want to say it's, it's, um, it's been very good for me to talk to you um, uh, like this. Uh, we haven't spoken in probably a, a decade or so. We trade emails. And you know, thank you for listening have, to us over the last 10 oh, years no, and, and, and caring. I, I really appreciate it. I, I feel like we've got a kinship, you and me, and you could be my, my one-year older brother if you want uh-huh. to be. I, I don't have a lot of family, yeah. you know. Uh, so I'm looking for family. I, the counselors are my family, and I'm very happy about They're that. They're wonderful, yeah. Um, and uh, Michael Moore, uh, the invitation to be my brother. You the know, older brother. My older soul brother, yes, or whatever yes. you want to be. <laughs> yes. um, well, I, 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 would, I would welcome that. Wow. I, um, uh, that's, that's, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, the, um, I, have to, I have to tell you, I, I have... Um, I have two sisters, and um, when you were saying that about Allison before, about um, the decisions that all of us have to make at some point in our lives, if we're going to stand up, if we're going to be heard, if we're going to fight, um, you, you know, we don't get to pick our siblings, as the old cliche goes. Um, but I, I'm lucky to have two sisters like that, both of them. Yes, you are. Are um, um, very much in, in, in that vein. Um, and I'm blessed that, that they're both alive and I can't yes, imagine you are. what that has been like for you all these years. Um, well, well, here's the deal. When she passed away, like I said, I'm a spiritual being, so I'm, I go a little woo woo here, but you know, she, I asked for a piece of her to come in me and, and she agreed cause she was shocked that she was dead. And, you know, the thing is, is like, we have our energy, we have our life force and our life force continues after we drop our body. I don't know what happens. I don't know. I mean, you know, I know more now than I did when I was a kid, but back then I just really sensed that Allison could come in me a little bit and I didn't want to let her go. And she did. And she's been with me my whole life. Now it's not in, in the real life and, uh, it, it, I, it's not tangible and I can't touch her cheek, which I really wish I could, but she's with me. And now 65, here I am 50 years later. And it's hard for me to tell who's, who's who, you know, inside. Mm-hmm. And, but I t- got to tell you when she came with me, I, she, I got a lot smarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think though, regardless of, what your spirituality is, whether you're religious, not religious, agnostic, atheist, whatever. I think I've, I've believed this for some time that when people pass away, um, they still live on because they live on oh, in us. Yes. Okay. And I know that, again, that sounds like a cliche, but, but I, I think about those who've gone before me, what I learned from them, what I, what I gleaned from them. And, um, and I see, I see glimpses of it every now and then. Um, uh, to the point that even when, you know, I'll, I'll be watching some, you know, Detroit sports game on TV or whatever, and something great happens, or maybe it's the university of Michigan and I'll actually reach for the phone to call my dad to see if he's watching this right now. And, and oh. by the time my hand gets to the phone, I realize, what are you doing? He's gone. And then right away, you know, but he's not no, gone I know, right away. I, I think, no, wait a minute. That's why I was reaching because yeah. he's not, because he's not gone. No. And whatever he gave me and whatever I'm able to do to carry on, I'm doing that 
with a piece of him and my mom and also my sisters and, and, and all the people I've encountered in my life, anybody who's, who's moved me in some way. And in the way that, that I honor your sister and the other three from that day, because of, of the shock it, it set me into in that classroom in that afternoon on May 4th. And, um, I really it wasn't, I wasn't, well, I, wasn't I wasn't the same again. And, and I knew, I knew that, um, I knew that my government had killed these students. And I knew that my government had, by sending nine boys from my high school to Vietnam who died, nine, there were many more that went to Vietnam from my high school, but nine came back in a box. And when the last one came back, I remember I was in the marching band there in high school having to play the football games. <clears throat> I just refused to play the national anthem one, one night. What did you play? I just, I just sat. I wouldn't stand up. I wouldn't stand up. I got hit. I got stuff thrown on me. And it just made me more determined. Um, I have to be honest. I didn't stand for the national anthem for many years. Good for you. After that. Um, I, I, I felt like it was my duty as an American to say, no, I'm not part of that America that mm-hmm. goes to kill Vietnamese, that sends people off to die, that goes on college campuses to stop protests, to stifle freedom of speech. And I have to say this, that I, to this day, anybody, I'm a lifelong member of the ACLU uh, yes. I, when I lived in Flint, I was the president of the local branch of the ACLU. I, I will fight tooth and nail anyone who tries to uh, take away one's freedom of expression, uh, prohibits somebody from having a book being published, from having a film being seen. Anytime that that happens in my life, it's over for the person who is trying to do the stifling and the censoring and the shutting down of anybody whose voice should be heard. So that's why I sat down. That's why when they, they kicked me out of the marching man, I think everybody knows the end of that story. Um, but um, I didn't care because I was not going to be even in by that time, 11th grade or 12th grade, I wasn't going to be a participant in it. And, and um, you know, eventually I started to stand at ball games or whatever, because there's just so much warm beer that can be poured down your back. I'll just stand and I'll meditate for a minute and a half here. Um, but listen, Laurel, I've, I've kept you too long. I just, I wanted to thank you for this in this week, the 50th anniversary of Kent state um, to, um, and, and to the relatives and friends of, of the other three, I don't want to, leave them uh, out of this. Right. Uh, Jeffrey right. Miller, uh, William Schroeder, Sandra Scheuer mm-hmm. also lost their lives uh, in two of them because they were protesting two of them because they just wanted to go to class. Well, they were actually wanting to, uh, they were really interested in what was going on too. They, they were, were very there, active. Yeah. They were there. Yeah, they, they were changing. It was noontime. 
you know, it was like, you know, go to lunch time, you know, it's, they made sure that there were targets on that hill. That's how bad it gets. Wow. But, you know, basically they succeeded in doing what they're doing. And 50 years later, they're holding their their concept of what happened, the government story, you know, very close to their chest. And uh, they won't allow, you know, tributaries of truth to be known. And that's where the problem is. It's it can't just be their story. It has to be everyone's story. Everyone has a Kent State story, right? I hope everybody has at least a story of, of what they've witnessed as citizens in a democracy when, when the powers that be decide that the resistance uh, must be dealt with. That could be just in, in your day-to-day job. That could, be, that could be you trying to form a, a union where you work. They have to stop you. That could be somebody no longer wanting to take having to watch the boss sexually harass women in the office. And then that person goes to the authorities in the office to say, this has to stop. And, you know, that doesn't always turn out well for the whistleblower. Well, I want to thank you for being the person, a person who stands up for what's right. And you've always taken that tact. And it's, it's just who you are. And you're, you're saying you got it when you were in high school as well. And it, it takes a lot to do that. I know how much it takes. I, I saw my father do it. And, and I've had to do it myself. And it's, it's, I admire that in you, Michael. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, I admire it, and everybody who's listening to this today, tonight, um, who, all of you who've taken a stand, any stand, even just for yourself, where you've just said, I can't take this anymore, and I won't take it anymore. Uh, this is how we're going to turn things around, my friends. Um, there are more of us than there are of them. We should never really be afraid. We, we, are, um, we are the many, and uh, they are the few. And... Um, Thank you, Laurel, for being part of the It's been my honor. Thank you very much. It's been my honor. And um, good luck at the Allison Peace Center there in uh, Mendocino. Um, Thank God for you and doing that work. It's it's very important. And um, to all of you who are are listening, um, I will uh, talk to you again here in the next uh, day or so. Uh, We'll be back. Uh, We've uh, got uh, Roger Waters uh, scheduled uh, to be our guest here uh, hopefully in the next few days um jeff garland um who is on the curb your enthusiasm uh is going to join us and uh so we have we have some good good people coming up we'll be talking about uh things political and um we're also going to be talking about our film planet of the humans that i executive produced it's written and directed by jeff gibbs you can watch it for free right now on my um youtube channel it's uh, it's a provocative new film that says uh, we we may be on the wrong road to saving this planet, and we don't have time to turn around if we don't do that um, very soon. Um, so uh, uh, check it out. Uh, it's I think we're over six and a half million people have have watched it in just the two weeks. So um, I welcome you uh, to uh, watch the film and let us know what you think. Um, and get this get the discussion going so we can save this planet that we're on um that's it that's it for this episode 
of Rumble. I'm Michael Moore. I've been speaking with Laurel Krauss. Um, let's never forget what happened on May 4th, 1970 in Kent State, Ohio. So long, everybody. Oh!